first episode of Chasing the Ghost Light. My name is Hannah Meyer, and I'm a writer and a pretty obsessive human being. And I'm also the communications director at Three Girls Theater, a theater company dedicated to developing, promoting, and presenting new plays by women playwrights. On this podcast, I interview artists about the singular moments that haunt them artistically. And today, Katie Tandy and I are on the interwebs together. Katie is a playwright, essayist, and co-founding editor of Pulp Magazine, an arts and culture publication that centers around sexuality and reproductive rights. She's a playwright at Three Girls Theater and a member of the band The Shaducks and is working on a memoir that braids stories of her youth with human physiology. So I know that you're also working on an episode of the radio play, The Sins and Secrets of Tabard Lake with Three Girls Theater. And I'm just kind of wondering like what it's been like for you to be working collaboratively in this moment in history. Sure. Um, first, which I just want to say, which is so funny, it is The Shaddocks. <laughs> Okay, which I, as I was no, saying no, it, no, I was no, like, we're not going to brain with my anecdote. Yeah. Um, okay. It's just like the main drag that takes humans yeah. from Oakland to uh, Berkeley, for those of you who are not in the Bay. Um, yeah. Man, working collaboratively uh, was awesome. I basically had never done it in writing. Um, certainly the editing process in working with writers, I would consider consider collaborative, um, but obviously you're not actually sort of both writing it. You're both playing very distinct roles and you're interfacing in that Venn diagram towards like a common goal. But um, it was really, really cool working with Lee and Emma on this episode. Um, we're all three really different humans. Um, sorry, you're hearing the jingle of my dog. Nice. And we all have different skill sets and different writing voices and and braiding those together um, was awesome. Lee was a real hard ass in terms of editing. I'm very long winded. I have like trouble killing my darlings. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, was excellent at this like very incisive eye um, in what was needed to move the story forward and what wasn't. Um, also, really challenging um, in this project was that you not only had to make it, you know, entertaining, which, you know, we hope it will be when the smoke clears, but also we really had to keep in mind um, all these different character pieces that were driving the plot forward. We had to take people from A to B, um, and that was predictated before we ever even started the writing process. And so it was a lot of constrictions. Um, and I know people say this, but I do think it breeds a lot of creativity. It's one of the reasons that um, I'm a pretty bad fiction writer in a lot of ways, and I've always shied away from it, um, is because it just feels too boundless. Whereas when I'm writing memoir, I know exactly what happened. I'm just trying to render it in the most beautiful and compelling way. Um, So I really, really enjoyed it. It was really stretching muscles that I did not have. Hmm. Yeah, I guess speaking of boundaries, but in like an entirely different uh, sense. So Mm. one of the first essays that I read of yours was The Dirty Politics of Period Sex. And in this essay, you describe yourself as this like born and bred atheist who has no sexual hangups, but who also is on this kind of self-loathing merry-go-round. And there's this moment in the essay where you write... 
How can he ever gaze at you and your little black dress and say, ah, she's always a woman to me when he's seen the sodden monstrosity that is a used tampon? And I know that you've written a lot about sexuality throughout your career, but I was wondering if you could speak a bit about what your sex education was like growing up. It's a good question. And it's one I've thought about certainly at least vis-a-vis my parents and my upbringing. It was a house of total openness and warmth and sex and nudity were, um, you know, my parents weren't hippies, but they were bohemian and whatever that delineation is meant that like, you know, my father was like around in his boxer shorts and, you know, we often had the door open if someone was like tinkling, you know, uh, And, you know, my mother was raised very, very Catholic, Irish Catholic, beaten by the nuns Catholic. Um, And she went to great lengths to um, raise me in such a way that there was very little shame and guilt and pain around the body and sex and being a human being with a mortal coil moving through this world. Um, You know, the running joke was I like, by the time I was a teenager, she would be like, you're a changeling. We found you in the forest. Like, where did you come from? Um, You know, she feels I've taken it too far. And she and I Mm. fought actually about the dirty politics of period sex essay quite a bit um, because she felt it was just quote unquote too much and unnecessary, um, you know, and, and what are these lines between privacy and something that's like sacred and intimate and what is designed to be sort of pushing the needle forward politically. And, you know, she's from a different generation. And I think the irony is she taught me to push those boundaries and then felt as though perhaps I had gone too far. Um, Sex education in school it's weird. I feel like in some ways there was like some level of osmosis. Like I don't remember. I can remember like a class with Mrs. Rosenfield in fifth grade talking about how, you know, our breasts would get sore as we were going through puberty. And I was like, okay, you know, um, interesting, but I I don't, uh, I mean, definitely my most, uh, this, this, actually, this is nuts. I went to Nuremberg College yep. okay, as well. And, you know, in the classic, uh, you know, capital L, capital A, liberal arts push, they felt very strongly, you know, that you had to take a little bit of everything, which I was into, you know, so as an art minor, which was incredible, everyone basically was in drawing one, like that had no interest in art, right? And so when we were in the live drawing classes, you'd watch these like beefcakes have to be drawing like the butthole of this like old man who had volunteered to be the nude model, which was really amazing. Um, But this is all to say that uh, part of these prerequisites was like a PE class. And part of said PE class was this sex ed class, which basically consisted of showing really traumatizing photographs that truly haunt me to this day. Um, and I'm someone who's like into the body, uh, of children that had been born through vaginas that were like horribly riddled with like genital warts and gonorrhea and chlamydia. And so like their eyes and their mouths and their nose were like horribly infected. And I mean, it was 
really next level scare tactics and nothing to do with all the important things that we, you know, should be focusing on, like joy and consent. Um, mm-hmm. Just the changelings. Just the terrifying, <laughs> miserable baby is born in very infected genitalia. Um, I, I don't know. I'm sort of speech. I hadn't thought about that in a long time. Um, I mean, it goes without saying. I mean, sex education across the universe, be it America or anywhere else, is is bad. It's really, really bad. Yeah. Um, and so it's no wonder to me that, you know, uh, even the most natural thing in the world, like menstruating is still this like huge source of shame and discomfort and desexualization and even face down with someone who is, um, you know, truly, truly just like on board with the whole bodily exchange and every piece and part of that, um, you're still suspicious. Yeah, because you're like, the suspicious association of blood is being like extremely medicalized and like a site of bad things. And then something that I, the quote that kept kind of kicking around my brain, I was like reading that essay is the very end when you sort of go into the sort of duality of blood is being both medicalized and is seen as violent, but then also very beautiful. And then seeing this like used tampon, um, that's, quote, quietly singing the unforgiving, beautiful messiness of the body, which reminds me of the, the Walt Whitman poem, I Sing the Body Electric. Um, yeah. And I was wondering if there's a moment in your life where you, like, sort of suddenly recognize blood as that, that it could be potentially beautiful. You know, I mean, and I hate to predicate it on a sexual exchange with another person, but I think... Um, you know, my relationship with that boyfriend, and we're still dear friends to this day. Um, I think that was really revelatory for me because I had very easily and quietly been able to remain kind of shameful about it because it was still this place where men, quote unquote, were allowed uh, to still be sort of like openly fearful you know my even my Mm -hmm. most progressive friends were like you know not banging out while heavily menstruating they certainly weren't having their partners like sensually pull their tampons between their legs in broad daylight and just like put it on the nightstand etc um and I think it was really curative and healing and I think it set the stage for how I moved forward sexually in and around it um and I do which, I mean, this is very intimate, but we're talking about all this stuff. Um, I have a copper IUD, um, and it makes my periods crazy um, mm-hmm. for about two days every month. Um, I have to change my super tampon, I'd say, every 90 minutes for, like... That's hardcore. For, like, 48 hours. It's cra- It's sort of crazy, but also mm-hmm. I don't get pregnant, and I don't have to put hormones into my body that makes my emotional eroticism even worse, so that's good. <laughs> yeah. um, and I do, I like, I definitely watch all the blood come out in the tampons. I love to like press it with my toe in the shower and watch it all flood out and swirl around in the water. And um, it is such a wild, cool thing. And also the most banal thing, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And the most like constant thing as well to be so. And also, which I don't know if it's in the essay, but um, it's basically 
it's this like, it doesn't scar. It's this like endless wound that never scars. And I really love that as a metaphor too. Um, that it is this like shedding of blood and self and there's no ramifications. It's this like very pure, cool cycle. And I know that a lot of women have a lot of pain in and around it and I don't mean to minimize that. Um, and maybe for them, it does not feel like this very pure and cleansing <laughs> cycle. Um, but for me, um, yeah, there is this kind of like sense of a purge and a sense of like lightness in the wake of it. And um, yeah, I sort of like being forced to interface with my body at that level. Um, mm-hmm. Although that was not always the case. And I do think that that relationship and that whole wrestling I did with it. Um, yeah, both like opened a door and closed one for me. And I'm thankful for that. Mm-hmm. It is so interesting, though, that how that's the only sort of non-wounding site of blood. But yet that's the most um, like criticized and the most politicized type of blood or one of the most. For sure. Um, and I, I yeah. I'm also wondering, you know, given that you've been writing about sexuality and existed in a lot of very progressive and feminist media spaces, how is, throughout your career, writing about sexuality and writing specifically about, I know you've written uh, other essays about blood, how has this changed your relationship to sexuality as a whole? If anything, you know, sitting at the helm of these different publications and working with so many brilliant writers who are really pushing the boundaries of the provocative. And I only say that it's provocative because, you know, we still live in a very heteronormative, patriarchal, white supremacist society. So, but it doesn't mean that it's not without bravery for that very reason, because you're pushing up against very deeply embedded forces, and that's always dangerous. Um, I mean, honestly, and I don't mean to be doom and gloom, it just reminds me of how far we have to go and how important it is to just keep writing about it and talking about it because the body is still such a poignant nexus of of politics and I'm proud to be like one little person at a couple gates that mm-hmm. just like try shaking let, on the outside yeah, yeah. really trying to let some like beautiful fucking water flow through that this land desperately needs to help it thrive and grow um, I think if you don't acknowledge how far we've come then you sort of start to feel insane and you have to go like full nihilistic um yeah you know and by definition which my friends remind me who are more into philosophy than I by definition uh we've never been like safer quote-unquote more civilized for lack of a better word than Mm. we ever have been like there are, you know, you cannot literally just like indiscriminately like slaughter in the streets, rape and pillage. I mean, in some places you can, but but then I think about like Argentina just like legalized abortion. I think about mm-hmm. the case in Lahore that like there was a huge and lengthy case around, you know, legally being able to test women's virginity that had been sexually assaulted and you know it's the stuff that keeps you up at night it makes you want to beat your head against the wall because it is so so dark such sanctioned gender-based violence um Mm -hmm. and i don't know i feel like on the daily there you can either like fill your cup up with amazing humans and organizations uh 
that are exacting real change that'll, you know, and the conversations that we're having in mainstream media, if you had asked me 10 years ago, you know, would this just be like casual on the NPR podcast or, you know, headlines in New York times, I would have laughed in your face and that feels amazing. Speaking of bodies, I know that you're working on a memoir, Amnesia and Other Gifts, that braids together stories of your childhood with human physiology. Could you speak a bit about this project and why you were interested in using human physiology as a lens to examine these stories? As someone who also is, is obsessed with our relationship to our body and um, the mysteries of it that don't have to be mysteries. Um, it became this really rich ground to use these childhood stories, um, and these different physiological elements as metaphors, um, Mm -hmm. what I was going through at any particular moment. Um, like one, which I always mispronounce is, is, uh, hysteroesis, which, basically, um, is this concept that, um, any given material, um, if you know what it's made of and what it's been subjected to, you can by definition then understand how it will react to, um, different input or pressure in the future. Um, but if let's say you buy a sofa at the thrift shop, um, and it's made of a certain foam and you sit down on it and it's depressed. And then when you stand up, it will rise again to its original shape over a certain amount of time. But if you don't know what something has been subjected to, you can never anticipate how it's going to behave in the future. Mm. Um, and so there, there are things like this where when you start extrapolating that to someone's mind or someone's body and the history that we all carry inside ourselves, it really ceases to be something you can anticipate. And that's been something really beautiful and weird. Mm -hmm. I know that you started working on this memoir because you suddenly realized you had this void in your memory and you couldn't remember sleeping with your ex. And I'm wondering, how did that inform your research on memory? And also, what was that? What was that like? It was really startling and awful. And then I was like, oh my God, maybe my mind is just performing this like, um, this beautiful amnesia to like protect us both from like, what is a memory that like, maybe you shouldn't have in the wake of breaking up, which is such a strange thing. It felt, which I think I talk about in there, but it felt like, right, maybe it's not appropriate anymore that, you know, years later I can still be like, yes, I remember the exact sensation of your penis entering me. Um, and like your face as you ejaculated and like our foreplay, like it would be so weird, I guess, or, uh, I guess painful to be able to like replay that, you know, on the sort of like cinematic loop behind your eyelids. Um, mm -hmm. but it also felt really disturbing and sad. It felt, yeah, like someone had come in with scissors and just like haphazardly cut through all these memories. Um, and then I started trying to think about other people too. And it was like just as gauzy and absent and strange. Um, 
there's real science there, um, obviously, around amnesia and the different kinds of amnesia mm-hmm. and what induces your mind to do that. Um, but when something isn't traumatic, its absence is somehow even more traumatic. <laughs> it's, it's like this, I don't know. Um, it reminds me of all the forces in our mind and our body that uh, are functioning an entirely subconscious level and dictating big decisions for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really fascinating and beautiful. Yeah. If sad. Um, and of and course, it, then you're already imagining the future absence, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, of other love, of other sex. Um, is that just now, right? So the, the scissors are always waiting, sort of like stage yeah. right out of your peripheral vision. It's kind of terrifying in so many ways, especially given the fact that you, and you kind of mentioned this relationship between the mind and the heart as one that's inherently protective, but also one that's kind of at odds with each other when you don't know like which memories you're losing, even though on an emotional level, you might really want them. So it's almost like a very, very minor like Alzheimer's in a yeah. way. Um, Alzheimer's aside... I know that you did a lot of archaeological digging when it comes to researching this memoir and interviewing family members. Was there anything surprising that you came across in this process? It's a good question. I will say, which is sort of the opposite of what you're asking in some ways, but I have sent early drafts of the essays to my parents and my mother in particular was like the level that you can remember is really freaking me out because you were about five when this happened and you were such a space cadet and a child that felt like very um very dreamy and not present and the fact that you actually were sort of this like like hyper like antenna like beep 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 creature just like in this seemingly like very pointed level of observation all the time um she was like I'm glad I didn't know at the time that you were doing that um I actually yeah there was sorry so there my brother so my brother is eight years older and again my mother um my mother had very bad endometriosis and I say this because it dovetailed with her very Irish upbringing. So when she was having sex before marriage, it was very painful for her. And she thought vaguely, although she knew it was bananas, but she couldn't help it because her entire like worldview was steeped in this very damaging, scary Catholic shit. You know, she thought God was punishing her when in actuality she had, you know, uteral scarring and that's why sex was painful for her. And she wasn't supposed to be able to have any children because her endometriosis was so bad. And so she had my brother in 76. And then when, she, when my brother was four, my parents split up very amicably and then got back together, I don't know, three years later. And as the story goes, um, you know, when they got back together, they were obviously having more sex than they had historically. And they got pregnant with me, um, which was an accident in that my mother never thought she could get pregnant. Um, especially after having had one child. Um, and then at three months she started hemorrhaging very, very badly. And she tells this like very 
beautiful, sad story, the only way a mother could, and it totally taps into your own narcissism, right? Where she, um, you know, I grew up on the Upper East Side of New York and she took a taxi cab just like with towels wadded between her legs, just bleeding and bleeding and bleeding and um, waiting to go to the hospital. And when she finally got in, you know, they said, I, I don't think there's any way that a baby could survive this at three months, but like we'll do a sonogram anyway. And I was still there. Um, and so she had to spend the rest of her pregnancy in bed. Um, this, wow, this is a really long way of saying that my brother was eight years older. And so in a lot of ways, we were only children. And uh, my grandfather announces that my father can no longer get financial help from him when I'm about four. And he brings the axe down and says, like, enough's enough. I'm not giving you any more money. You need to come move to Florida and help with your grandmother who is getting sicker and sicker with multiple sclerosis. And like, that's it. Like the, the golden, the golden hose of money is ending for you. (laughs) And so my parents, rather than uproot my brother who had developed his entire life in reality and was a teenager, um, in New York decided to let him move in with his best friends. Um, and, uh, I had always thought that my brother, um, was incredibly thankful for that. And having been a teenager myself, I can imagine being like, I get to move in with my best friends. I was like the fourth brother. Um, my life doesn't get uprooted. Um, you know, but in reality, which, um, of course, this must have been horrifying for him, even if you don't know that as a 13-year-old boy and you're not entirely dialed in. Like, his childhood sort of ended there. He never lived with me or my parents ever again. Um, he lived with his friends, then he went to boarding school, then he went to college, and then you're an adult and out of the house. Um, and he told me this, like, such saccharine memory where Father of the Bride with Steve Martin had just come out. And the whole family was like gathered around, whatever. Um, and they were they were watching this film. And he's like, you know that like horrible montage when he's like playing back the memories of his little girl as she's like descending the staircase. He's like, I burst into like hot, ragged tears and had like no idea what was happening to my body and had to like flee the room um, and just like choke cry away for a few minutes. And I had no idea what was happening. And he's been like working with a therapist, which I find just like, I don't know, very beautiful and sweet, like communing with his like 13 year old soul self and the sort of like necessary abandonment that had to happen. Cause I still do mm-hmm. think it was a decision. And so does he. Um, but it was a sort of death knell for his childhood for sure. And that was, I had never, really yeah I just never really thought about it from his perspective and if anything I had thought it was like this huge sacrifice for my parents who had given up their son but I think in truth it was like this this mutual pain that they both shared um so that was yeah that was surprising and weird what you said about your brother living with his friends in New York from a young age reminds a lot of what you said about the scissors just waiting in the wings stage left um whether it's you know lopping off a memory or the inevitable drastic shifts or endings of relationships 
your memoir, you write, quote, I'm busy imagining more goodbyes. I'm imagining the void that my absence will bring to another person's life. We've only just begun, and I already need to forget. And it, it makes me think so much about the unbearable lines of being, um, which I remember we spoke about um, earlier, um, and how ironically the weight and the obligation of love is so like fucking heavy. Um, I know that you've mentioned that you're sort of like a, a creature who's very much entangled with this nature of obligation. Um, in working on this project, has your relationship to obligation changed? It's not something that I've solved by any means, and I still am haunted by this like constant feeling of goodbyes. I mean, even with friendships, you know, I had, which I want to write about too, I lived what we called, you know, this very high-end collegiate life with two of my best female friends in this very community-oriented house, and we were sort of the hub of the friend group. Um, And... You know, I mourn it deeply. And while it was happening, I was like, this is one of the happiest chapters of my life. And I'm both so thankful that I know it and I don't have to just retroactively know how happy I was. But I was very bifurcated in those, you know, three years because I knew it was finite and I knew it was going to end and that I was always going to have this sort of shadow self attached to it. Um, And so... I haven't cured myself of it is the long story short, but I have complicated my worldview on it and it's helped. It's helped a lot. What has it been like to, to complicate your, your understanding of the nature of obligation? It, it also reminds me a lot of what you said about uh, menstruation where it's like super necessary, but like it's this wound that is like always there. Like pushing back against the very thing that you're trying to do is its own form of like Sisyphusian hellscape. Mm. And I think recently I was writing, I was writing actually, um, the friend of mine, the once lover with the tampon and the whole situation who, you know, who's now just a dear friend. And I was talking to him about whatever, you know, my various, uh, weekly existential dread moments. And, you know, he said, I think this is just your life work having to negotiate the weight of all these people that you love and do you really when you look in the mirror want any other challenge than that like if we all have some big rock that is strapped to our back whether we put it there or it was put there and we're like you know I think in a lot of ways he's right that I I think I spent a lot of my life trying to figure out how to erect boundaries that were permeable enough that I could still have those intimacies and that intensity of feeling and love and heaviness and also be buoyant. And I think ironically, just saying like, this is, yeah, this is, this is the way I bear. And the fruits of that weight are so delicious, if strange and bitter sometimes that, um, it was a bit, the buoyancy came from succumbing to the weight I think (laughs) in a lot of ways. Um, And as much as I admire and can um, really understand the beauty of like the Buddhist path of these, of this sort of um, 
no expectations and, and having very few, um, connections in that way. Um, and the, the, you know, how transient things can be and how freeing that, that must feel to really like know at a cellular level that, um, this too shall pass. And so why fret about any of the people or things that are, you know, yeah. That makes me think of something. Did you, what's, was DR David Rosenwasser at Muhlenberg when you were... Yeah, I love David Rosenwasser. He wrote yeah. my recommendation letters for grad school. Nice. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. he's actually retiring this year. Wow. Uh, but, like, I was in uh, the European novel and translation with him, and we talked a lot about James Wood, who wrote How Fiction Works. And James Wood writes about how beginnings are sites of narrative optimism, um, yeah. But I think on the other, uh, on the other hand, they're also just sites of like immense pressure, and I feel navigating like navigating the heaviness and the lightness of those beginnings is such like a lifelong process. Yeah, I love I love bringing um, James Wood into it. It's very meta, right? I mean, it's writing writing requires you know revisiting these memories, and in some ways. Um, yeah, you have to go back to the beginning and mm-hmm. um, live it through all over again. And there is a huge amount of pressure and there's responsibility, right? And certainly in writing memoir, um, I know that he writes about fiction, but I would imagine that that responsibility is, is different, but just as heavy. I mean, you really, you really need to do it justice, right? And you're also bringing people along with you. Um, so... Yeah, that resonates with me a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, the last thing that I wanted to sort of touch on is is your music, um, oh, yeah. and Thank I you. think I think when I was like first researching when I was in your head interviewed you for the table read, um, I I'm like really interested in you know the relationship between your writing, which is so um, poetic and embodied. And then also the fact that you're, um, you know, in the Shaddix, is how you say it. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, and, you know, you write it in an essay, um, Fit to Bust, on the neuroscience of sex and rock and roll. Sort of, you know, the power that comes with being a good, a good dancer and a good performer. And I was wondering if in your writing process with this band, if you, if you feel like your work as a memoir and a journalist informs that process. I love the exercise of trying to exact the body in words and when people read it, they can feel it in their body, right? Like that's, um, and doing it justice, right? Um, but there is something really physical about, I think particularly rock and roll, and I'm sure any singer would say otherwise, regardless of what genre they're saying that they perform. Um, and the transmutation of words of rock and roll into this like bodily self. And you're physically interfacing with all these people in the room, which I really love. And, you know, and that essay talks about this sort of like very cool underpinnings of like why we love rhythm and how all those bodies moving together know how to move together. Um, you know, which in turn is like how your body knows to like fuck together too. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think there is, 
that trifecta of like words to body to strangers' bodies, um, yeah, is a really beautiful dialogue. Um, and again, feels so uh, feels more archetypal and less intentional than than writing an essay. Um, you know, you can fixate so much, and of course I do, on choosing the exact words to try to um, convey what you need to. And there's something that is, I think, yeah, just entirely of the bodily self. Like, I don't think anyone who comes to see the shows would be like, I was dancing really hard because that's a song about being like, fuck you, I don't need you anymore. I don't think anyone knows the words to the songs. Therefore, I narratively, I need to embody it through these movements. Yeah, they're just yeah. like, I'm just like feeling like the animal energy radiating off you to me, from me back to you. Like, the beat is relentless. Like, you're sweaty, I'm sweaty. Like, there's just a there's a dialogue happening, but I don't think anyone knows the words. It is also bizarre how it's one of the few most like non-sexual, sort of non-sexual forms of like physical communion that you can get without being yeah. in like an orgy with other people. But I feel like that really is like, the closest thing that you can like come to that sort of like Dionysian uh, communal like togetherness. Yes, I would totally agree. I think there's a real not so latent sexual energy without it being explicit. Um, yeah. And I love that too. It's like, it's like edging <laughs> for like a whole concert. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've never thought about that way, but yeah, I can definitely see that parallel for sure. Um, I was also wondering, so you, so like that music is in the genre of slop joy, which I mean, when I was, what is that? What is that? Because I don't know. I think I know that John was specific to you and with and in that band. But I was wondering, like, what exactly does that does Lockjoy mean to you? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I wish Joff was here, who's um, the guitarist of the band, and um, he writes he writes the majority of the music, and I write the lyrics, and we write it together. But. Um, <laughs> I mean, we're a bunch of idiots. And what started out is we would just play in the living room and then it evolved into it being a real band, so to speak. But Slop Joy is a sort of idea of being like, yeah, the inherent joy of it not being very tidy or precise and that the self-expression and the wild yop to bring it back to Walt Whitman is, mm. is the thing as opposed to it being um, technically perfect or the harmony completely dialed in. Um, I think there's like a shared, yeah, I think there's just like a shared desire um, to feel good, yeah, in, mm -hmm. your, in your body and to wanna make other people move their body more than we're concerned with being taken seriously, which isn't to say I don't think it's good music, I do. Um, and I think everyone is actually I'm the least talented musician out of everybody in it. Um, and so they often are having entire conversations about, you know, it's a, you know, it's a minor walk down in the key of E. And I'm like, just give me the nod when you want me to come in. You know? <laughs> um, just point it to me. Yeah. And in some ways, you know, Joff, you know, Joff and I, I think do work so well together because I don't understand how it works. I can tell when it's like a tasty melody and I can tell when it'll feel cool to yell or it'll feel cool to 
make it go quiet or to try to layer stuff. But um, I think it works well because he does understand the actual mechanics of music so mm. much. Um, and I'm really, really, I'm really thankful for our like puzzle pieceness around it. I think finding people that for whatever reason, it works to make art together. Um, uh, yeah, I wish it for everyone on this earth. I mean, I think finding your tribe that way is imperative to keeping your head above water. <laughs> well, thank you so much for hopping on to the pod. It's been for listening this has been chasing the ghost light my name is hannah meyer and next episode i will be interviewing playwright susan jackson please share and rate and review this podcast at wherever you get your pods our music is from the band thrown out bones and this podcast is produced by nick angleton in association with three girls theater 